So, um, when I look in the mirror these days, I see my dad looking back. <laughs> it is unnerving. I never thought I looked like him, but I do more and more as I get older. Now, Sarah says occasionally she can see my dad coming through my behavior and reaction to things. Not a carbon copy, but certainly I can see some of the traits coming through. My dad would do anything for anybody, but not if it was expected of him. Then he would dig in his heels and stubbornly refuse. My dad also regularly went round roundabouts more than once, working out where he was supposed to get off. I do that too. <laughs> My mum was great in many ways, stoic, wise, caring. I hope that I get that bit too. Now, I'm not my mum or my dad, but I am bits of both because, and a whole heap of stuff that has been around me and developed me over the years. Now, there's a sign in the back of local buses, I'm sure you've seen it, with a big beady eye that says, watch your speed, your son is. Have you seen that? We are formed by our experience, nurture, and from the original clay that we were made, nature. And the Holy Spirit works and transforms both of those as we allow him. We're talking in this series about being human in a God-shaped world. In any passage, we ask, what are the humans doing? What is God doing? And what might that say to us? Now, Jacob's life is recalled in Genesis chapters 25 to 35, and we've had the, the pleasure of dipping into certain aspects of Jacob's life as one of the characters we're looking at. It begins with Jacob and Esau, and it ends with Jacob and Esau. We saw Jacob cheat Esau out of his blessing, but we see Jacob return Esau's blessing. That's in today's story. Jacob meets God in a dream at Bethel. Jacob also then wrestles with an angel of God later. Jacob arrives at Laban's home. Jacob leaves Laban. Jacob marries Rachel and Leah after being outwitted by Laban. Jacob outwits Laban. So you can see the story mirroring. Something happens early in his life and then something different. So the, the opposite happens later in his life. And the focal point, the fulcrum of this story is chapter 29 into 30, the birth of Jacob's sons. Now, listen carefully because there will be a test after the service. <laughs> Leah was unloved by Jacob. She had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and then later Issachar and Zebulun. She also had a daughter, Dinah. Each time a child came, she hoped that this child would be the one that would turn Jacob's eye and love to her. They never did. Rachel couldn't conceive, and in her frustration, she directed Jacob to her servants. Bilhah bore Dan and Naphtali on behalf of Rachel. Leah now gave Jacob her servant, Zilpah. Zilpah bore Gad and Asher. Rachel finally conceived and had Joseph and then finally Benjamin. So Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter by four different wives. Leah, the unloved, had six sons, the servants four, and finally Rachel, Jacob's love of his life, had two. Now here's the question. How must they all have felt? 
the constant competition between Rachel and Leah. Leah's constant disappointment and craving for Jacob's approval and affection. Rachel's frustration that others could bear Jacob a son and she couldn't for years. Jacob's apparent favoritism of one wife over the others. Jacob's frustration over being tied to the service of Laban. What stories must the children of Jacob have heard about their dad? The family myths, we all have them, don't we? Why were they in this faraway land? Well, because dad had to run away from Uncle Esau. Dad's name even means liar and cheat. What must it have been like? What must he have done to leave us here? The family history may then stretch to Jacob's dealings with Laban, how he was cheated on their wedding night. Would they even know that? That might explain some of the tension. Or maybe it was just a big secret that no one talked about, the elephant in the room. We know there's a problem, but we don't know what it is. Now God describes himself in the Bible in a famous passage in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now we know all about the mercy, his faithfulness and the forgiveness bits, We also know that he punishes. Just look at Sodom and Gomorrah. But what about this bit about down through the generations? John Mark Comer addresses this in his book, God Has a Name. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. It can't mean that punishment for sin is passed down the generations, surely. God can't be contradicting himself through Moses' instructions. So Coma identifies two layers. The parent's sin has consequences for children. Sin runs in the family. It can be passed on through both nature and nurture. But the key point is, it is not inescapable. God is infinite in his mercy, and his mercy outweighs his judgment. Hence the stuff about being patient and slow to anger. But he will continue to punish until sin is eradicated from the generational line. He doesn't give up on us. He loves us that much. I try very hard to be the best things of mum and dad and to minimise the worst. I can only do this by the power of his spirit. My own part is to oscillate between diligence and despair in this endeavour. Now, the preparation for our reading today is that Jacob is still terrified of his brother. Decades after the events that estranged them, they are to meet again. Jacob has been transformed by his encounter with God. His name has been changed to Israel, which means either wrestles with God or triumphant with God. But, He is still scared. Esau has come with 400 men. So he lines up his family. Bilhah, Zilpah and their children at the front. 
then Leah and her children, and then Rachel at the back with Joseph and Benjamin. Jacob goes on ahead of them. Now that's a change in his character for a start. And he prostrates himself to the ground, bowing low seven times. He seeks peace with his brother, but expects slaughter. But times have changed. Esau, rather than being angry with him, remember he'd had, he'd, he'd had things stolen from him twice, and they'd been estranged for years. Rather than being angry, he embraces him. Esau ran to meet Jacob, embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. It's a beautiful picture. It has echoes of Luke 15, 20. In this case, it's Jesus speaking. It's a son, not a brother. Jesus told the parable of the son who demanded and blew a fortune, and on his return, expecting nothing, the father ran to him in his compassion. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Jesus told this parable to show how the father greets errant sinners who return to him. Now, the loose ends of this story of Esau and Jacob are being tied up. Jacob has brought a, life, a whole load of livestock as a gift. Esau says, no, you don't need to do that. It's too extravagant. But Jacob insists. The transformation and the reconciliation are complete. That which he cheated and lied to steal is returned to his brother. And this represents the blessing and the birthright that Jacob had stolen returned and the brothers are reconciled. Now here's the question. How must this have looked? If you remember, the children and the wives are behind Jacob watching this whole thing. They've got front row seats. So the children from this dysfunctional family were right there in the vanguard. They could see everything their father bowing down, the acceptance from the uncle that none of them had ever seen, and the anticipated violence turned into embrace. What did they make of it? Did they see just a little of Father God that Jesus would portray in that parable in the actions of the estranged brother? How were they nurtured by this experience? So let's jump ahead a few chapters to chapter 44 and 45. I'm sure you, know, sure you know the story. Joseph, the favorite son, note, is given a technicolor coat by his father and he indelicately shares his dreams with his brothers. Dreams that they will bow down to him. In their anger, they sell him off to traders and tell their father he has been killed by wild animals. Joseph travels via a rich man's household to jail, to the court of the pharaoh, and his dream interpretation lands him the top job in Egypt. If you don't have the songs going through your head by now, there's something wrong with you. Okay, so... <laughs> Years later, in the midst of a famine, the brothers travel to Egypt for provision. They don't recognize their brother, but he hatches a plan to punish them and to get his revenge. Revenge, anger, power plays, cheating, the planting of evidence in a sack, lying. It seems that the apple does not fall far from the tree from Jacob 
to Joseph in this moment, the sins of the father being played out. Yet the story takes a surprising turn. Remembering that Judah, Leah's fourth son, had previously shown spectacular lack of judgment and self-control with Tamar, I'll leave you to read that story, chapter 37. Um, Benjamin is Joseph's full brother, being sons of Rachel. And he is threatened to death because he is the one whose sack contained the stolen silver that Joseph had planted. It is Judah that speaks up for him. He tells the story and then pleads for Benjamin's life. Genesis 44, 33. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that will come to my, on my father. Joseph, who up till now has been hard-hearted and bent on revenge, melts. He dismisses the attendants in court and reveals himself to his brothers. He promises to look after them and ask for his father, Jacob, to come to Egypt. He cannot feel anger anymore. He sees the whole story in a new way. In 45 verse 4, And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. How much self-reflection must have gone into that phrase? How much of this was inspired by what they had seen on the plain many years before? Jacob, their father, prostrated on the floor. Judah offered himself for the brother that was threatened. Esau had forgiven and ran to Jacob with an embrace. Joseph forgives and offers provision and reconciliation. The sins of the father had replicated in their lives, but so had the good examples that formed them just as much. So how might this apply to us today? Five closing thoughts. Firstly, God transforms situations and does not give up. He wills reconciliation as much as we cause division. Secondly, we influence the next generation by what we say and what we do, not just our own children. We are influencers to the younger generations for good and for ill. We need to get that balance right and model the good, the holy and the Father's nature. Thirdly, we need God's Holy Spirit to guide us in this holiness. None of the characters in this story demonstrate holiness in their own strength, quite the opposite. God has his hand on situations and plays a long game, as we see in the reflections on Jacob's story, where we will mess up as much as we will get it right. But it's only by submission to him that we will succeed. Fourthly, a quote from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Verse 7, impress them on your children. 
talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. We need to support that children and youth work led by Jude, Charlotte and Chuck. We need to support and honour our children and model to them what godly discipleship looks like because they are watching. And the fifth point. Truly I tell you, said Jesus, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it, Mark 10, 15. So the final thought is maybe we also need to have the humility to watch them model it to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these stories in Genesis that we've been following. And we thank you that each time we see one of these stories, we see your hand on these relationships and these things that happen. And that in that long game, in that long story, even when these characters mess things up, sometimes spectacularly, that you still stay with them and you work with them to change that situation. And Father, we pray today for reconciliation. For anybody who is estranged. And we pray today that we are conscious of the model that we are giving to others. None of us is perfect and we all will get it wrong. But Lord, today, help us to pray to you that you will mend and enhance the model that we can be to others, particularly the younger generations. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.